Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914 to 1918 war.com. Uh, in this episode we continue our reading of Five Months of Anzac. Check out the link in the show notes to find uh, directions to the Substack newsletter if you want to try that. And let's get on with the show. It's the summer holidays at the moment so I'm taking a pause on that but if you subscribe uh, now it'll be, uh, it, when I restart it'll uh, kick in. Just one longer chapter this week for you. Uh, let's get on with the show. Everything you hold for a while is at stake. You are to start a Berührung with the way. Then we are to own Hölzchen, Weltumfang, Geistino, von Gewinn. Ambulance work. Our bearers were doing splendid work. It was a long and dangerous carry, and a lot of them were wounded themselves. The miserable part of the affair was that the casualty clearing station on the beach broke down and could not evacuate our wounded. This caused a block, and we had numbers of wounded on our hands. A block of a few hours can be dealt with. But when it is impossible to get cases away for 40 hours, the condition of the men is very miserable. However, we got the cooks going, and we had plenty of bovril and oxo, which we boiled up with biscuits broken small. It made a very sustaining meal, but caused thirst, which was troublesome, as it was particularly difficult to obtain water. Shelter from the sun, too, was hard to get. The day was exceedingly hot, and there were only a few trees about. As many as could be got into the shade were put there, but we had to keep moving them round to avoid the sun. Many of the cases were desperate, but they uttered not a word of complaint. They all seemed to understand that it was not our fault that they were kept there. As the cases were treated by us, they were taken down towards the beach and kept under cover as much as possible. At one time we had nearly 400 waiting for removal to the ship. Then came a message asking for more stretchers to be sent to the firing line, and none were to be obtained. So we just had to remove the wounded from those we had, lay them on the ground and send the stretchers up. Thank goodness we had plenty of morphia, and the hypodermic syringe relieved many who would otherwise have suffered great agony. Going through the cases, I found one man who had his arm shattered and a large wound in his chest. Amputation at the shoulder joint was the only way of saving his life. Major Clayton gave the anaesthetic, and we got him through. Quite a number of Gurkhas and Sikhs were among the wounded, and they all seemed to think it was part of the game. Patience loomed large among their virtues. Turkish wounded were also on our hands, and though they could not speak our language, still they expressed gratitude with their eyes. One of the Turks was interrogated, first by the Turkish interpreter, with no result. The Frenchman then had a go at him, and still nothing could be got out of the man. After these two had finished, Captain Jeffries went over to the man and said, would you like a drink of water? Yes, please, was the reply. During one afternoon, after we had been in this place for three days, a battalion crossed the ground between us and the beach. This brought the Turkish guns into action immediately, and we got the time of our lives. We had reached a stage when we regarded ourselves as fair judges of decent shell fire, and could give an unbiased opinion on the point, 
But, to paraphrase Kipling, what we knew before was pop to what we now had to swallow. The shells simply rained on us, shrapnel all the time. Of course our tent was no protection as it consisted simply of canvas and the only thing to do was to keep under the banks as much as possible. We were jammed full of wounded in no time, men rushing into the gully one after another and even a company of infantry tried to take shelter there, but that of course could not be allowed. We had our Geneva Cross flag up and their coming there only drew fire. In three quarters of an hour we put through 54 cases Many bearers were hit, and McGowan and Threlfall of the 1st Light Horse Field Ambulance were killed. Seven of our tent division were wounded. One man reported to me that he had just been sent as a reinforcement, had been through Samoa and had just arrived in Gallipoli. While he was speaking, he sank quietly down without a word. A bullet had come over my shoulder into his heart. That was another instance of the fortune of war. Many men were hit, either before they landed or soon after, while others could go months with never a scratch. From 2 till 7pm, we dealt with 142 cases. The shelling lasted for an hour or more, and when it subsided, a party of men arrived with a message from divisional headquarters. They had been instructed to remove as many of the ambulance as were alive. Headquarters, it appears, had been watching the firing, we lost very little time in leaving, and for the night we dossed down in the scrub a mile further along the beach, where we were only exposed to the fire of spent bullets coming over the hills. Our fervent prayer was that we had said goodbye to shells. The new position was very nice. It had been a farm. In fact, the plough was still there, made of wood, no iron being used in its construction. Blackberries, olives and wild thyme grew on the place, and also a kind of small melon. We did not eat any, we thought we were running enough risks already, but the cooks used the time to flavour the bovril, and it was a nice addition. Not far from us, something happened that was for all the world like an incident described by Zola in his Debajo, when during the bombardment before Sedan, a man went on ploughing in a valley with a white horse, while an artillery duel continued over his head. Precisely the same thing occurred here, the only difference being that here the man persisted in looking after his cattle while the guns were firing over his head. Walkley and Betts proved ingenious craftsmen. They secured two wheels left by the signalling corps, and on these fastened a stretcher. Out of a lot of web equipment lying about, they made a set of harnesses. Two donkeys eventuated from somewhere, and with this conveyance, quite a lot of transport was done. Water and rations were carried as well, and the saving to our men was great. Goodness knows the bearers were already sufficiently working, carrying wounded. The Bacant did some splendid firing, right into the trenches every time. With one shot amongst the dust and earth, a Turk went up about thirty feet, arms and legs extended, his body revolving like a Catherine wheel. One saw plenty of limbs go up at different times, but this was the only time when I saw a man go aloft in extenso. It was while we were in this position that Warrant Officer Henderson was hit. The bullet came through the tent, through another man's arm, and into Mr Henderson. He was a serious loss to the ambulance, as since its inception 
He had had sole charge of everything connected with the supply of drugs and dressings, and I missed his services very much. We were now being kept very busy and had little time for rest, numbers of cases being brought down. Our table was made of four biscuit boxes on which were placed the stretchers. We had to be very sparing of water, as all had to be carried. The donkey conveyance was kept constantly employed. Whenever that party left, we used to wonder whether they would return, for one part of the road was quite exposed to fire, but Betts and Walkley both pulled through. One night I had just turned in at 9.30, when Captain Welsh came up to say that a bad casualty had come in, and so many came in afterwards that it was three o'clock in the morning before I had finished operating. While in the middle of the work, I looked up and saw G. Anshaw holding the lantern. He belonged to the first field ambulance, but had come over to our side to give any assistance he could. He worked like a Trojan. We still had our swim off the beach from this position. It will be a wonderful place for tourists after the war is over. For Australians particularly, it will have an unbounded interest. The trenches where the men fought will be visible for a long time and there will be trophies to be picked up for years to come. All along the flat land by the beach, there are sufficient bullets to start a lead factory. Then searching among the gullies will give good results. We came across the Turkish quartermaster's store, any quantity of coats and boots and bully beef. The latter was much more palatable than ours. Our men had a novel way of fishing. They threw a bomb into the water, and the dead fish would either float and be caught, or go to the bottom, in which case the water was so clear they were easily seen. Wilson brought me to something like a mackerel that were delicious. As there was still a good deal of delay in getting the cases off, our tent was brought over from Canterbury Gully and pitched on the beach, the cooks keeping the bovril and biscuits going. We could not maintain it there long, however, as the Turks' rifle fire was too heavy, so the evacuation was all done from Walker's Ridge about two miles away. The casualty clearing station here, the 16th, was a totally different proposition from the other one. Colonel Corkery was commanding officer and knew his job. His command was exceedingly well administered, and there was no further occasion to fear any block in getting our wounded off. Among the men who came in to be dressed was one wounded in the leg. The injury was a pretty bad one though the bone was not fractured. The leg being uncovered, the man sat up to look at it. He exclaimed, Eggs a cook! I thought it was only a scratch! Our bearers did great work here, Sergeant Baber being in charge and the guiding spirit amongst them. Carberry from Western Australia proved his worth in another manner. The 4th Brigade was some distance up the gully and greatly in want of water. Carberry seemed to have the knack of divining, for he selected a spot where water was obtained after sinking. General Monash drew my attention to this, and Carberry was recommended for the Distinguished Conduct Medal. Early in August, soon after Colonel Manders was killed, I was promoted to his position as Assistant Director of Medical Services, or as it's usually written, ADMS. On this I relinquished the command of the 4th Field Ambulance, and though I appreciated the honour of the promotion, yet I was sorry to leave the ambulance. We had been together so long, and through so much, and every member of it was of such sterling worth, that when the order came for me to join headquarters, 
I must say my joy was mingled with regret. Everyone, officers, non-commissioned officers and men, had all striven to do their level best and had succeeded. With one or two exceptions, it was our first experience on active service, but all went through their work like veterans. General Godley, in whose division we were, told me how pleased he was with the work of the ambulance and how proud he was to have them in his command. The honour list was quite sufficient to satisfy any man. We got one distinguished service order, two distinguished conduct medals and sixteen mentioned in dispatches. Many more deserved recognition, but then all can't get it. Major Meekle took charge and I am sure the same good work will be done under his command. Captain Dawson came over with me as D.A.D.M.S. The extra D there is deputy. He had been adjutant from the start until the landing, when he handed over to Captain Finn, D.S.O., who was the dentist. Major Clayton had charge of C-section. Captains Welsh, Jeffreys and Kenny were the officers in charge of the bearer divisions. Jeffreys and Kenny were both wounded. Captain B. Finn of Perth, Western Australia, was a specialist in eye and ear diseases. Mr. Cosgrove was the quartermaster, and Mr. Baber the warrant officer. Sergeant Baxter was the sergeant clerk. To mention any of the men individually would be invidious. They were as fine a set of men as one could desire to command. In fact, the whole ambulance was a very happy family, all doing their bit and doing it well. On the 21st of August, an attack was made on what we now know as the W Hills, so named from their resemblance to that letter of the alphabet. Seated on a hill, one had a splendid view of the battle. First the Australians went forward over some open ground at a slow double with bayonets fixed, not firing a shot. The Turks gave them shrapnel and rifle fire, but very few fell. They got right up to the first Turkish trench, when all the occupants turned out and retired with more speed than elegance. Still our men went on, taking a few prisoners and getting close to the hills, over which they disappeared from my view. Next, a battalion from Suvla came across as supports. The Turks, meanwhile, had got the range to a nicety. The shrapnel was bursting neatly and low and spreading beautifully. It was the best Turkish shooting I had seen. The battalion was rather badly cut up, but a second body came across in more open order than the others, and well under control of their officers. They took advantage of cover and did not lose so many men. The fight was more like those one sees in the illustrated papers than any hitherto, shells bursting, men falling and bearers going out for the wounded. The position was gained and held, but there was plenty of work for the ambulance. There were very few horses on the peninsula, and those few belonged to the artillery. But at the time I speak of, we had one attached to the New Zealand and Australian headquarters to be used by the dispatch rider. Anzac, the headquarters of General Birdwood, was about two and a half miles away, and being a true Australian, the dispatch carrier declined to walk when he could ride, so he rode every day with dispatches. Part of the journey had to be made across a position open to fire from Walker's Ridge. We used to watch for the man every day and make bets whether he would be hit. Directly he entered the fire zone. He started as if he was riding in the Melbourne Cup, sitting low in the saddle while the bullets kicked up dust all around him. One day the horse returned alone, and everyone thought the man had been hit at last. 
but in about an hour's time he walked in. The saddle had slipped and he'd come off and rolled into a sap, whence he made his way to us on foot. When going through the trenches, it is not a disadvantage to be small of stature. It is not good form to put one's head over the sandbags. The Turks invariably objected, and even entered their protest against periscopes, which are very small in size. Numbers of observers were cut about the face, and a few lost their eyes through the mirror at the top being smashed by a bullet. On one occasion, I was in a trench which the men were making deeper. A rise in the bottom of it just enabled me, by standing on it, to peer through the loophole. On commending the man for leaving this lump, he replied, That's a dead Turk, sir. That brings us to the end of that uh, longer chapter. I'm going to leave it there for this week. Uh, check out the Substack. The link is in the show notes. Interesting chapter, that one. I certainly had never considered that uh, if your periscope was hit, there was a risk to your eyes. So uh, that was a new one on me. Um, thanks for listening, and I'll uh, see you next episode. Bye. Bye.